This is the Herb Mendelssohn Story. Episode 4, Father Herb. He doesn't fight crime or wear a cape. He doesn't read minds or levitate. But every time my world needs saving... He's my Superman. Some folks don't believe in heroes cause they haven't met my dad. If you've listened to the last few episodes of the Herb Mendelssohn story, you may recall that throughout his professional life, Herb dealt with a sort of dichotomy. On the one hand, many of his patients loved him for his skill, and maybe even more so for his caring, compassion, and quirky manner. But at the same time, earlier in his career, Herb had been given the cold shoulder by many of the best hospitals and was often disrespected by his partners, with the exception of Dick Hall. And this was in part because Herb was a bit of an oddball, a quirky and eccentric guy who didn't fit the established mold of a sophisticated, self-important physician. But while these qualities sometimes contributed to career challenges, they earned him the love, devotion, and even awe of his kids. You wanted to be with my dad. I could speak for all of us. We worship the ground he walks on. And we really did it when we were children. He never got annoyed. He never got tired. He never didn't want us to be around. In fact, he wanted everybody in the world to to be with him when he was doing stuff because he thought it was great. And if he thought it was great, we thought it was great. As soon as they were old enough, Herb took his kids with him everywhere. And that often meant spending long hours at the hospital. The best. The best. My daddy. (laughs) Oh, we wanted to go with my dad to the hospital. We were never forced. My dad used to take me with him all the time to go to the emergency room. He would have me help him set wrists and uh, roll casts and things like that, which at that time was, again, it reinforced my understanding that my father was a superhero. My father could fix and do anything. We were never forced, but we never planned on being there for 14 hours. (laughs) He would He would schlep us to patient to patient and let us sign their casts, and they liked us. We were cute little kids. You know, all little kids are cute. Eventually, tired and starving, they'd call Phyllis and say, Mom, we want to come home. Dad would say, just one more, just one more. And then he would buy us a tuna fish sandwich out of the machine, and I have to tell you, that was the best, best thing we ever ate as a kid. We'd leave the house 9, 30, 10 in the morning, and we wouldn't come home till 10 o'clock midnight. And if we were lucky, we'd eat during the day. Sometimes we didn't have our first meal until 7 o'clock at night. It was phenomenal. I hated going to school because my education would stop once I went to school. I remember one time he took me with him to the emergency room, and there was this uh, fellow who was was drunk, and he had uh, fallen and dislocated his shoulder. And this guy was on the ground, oh, my God, in a roaring in pain. Herb told young Steve to put his foot in the guy's armpit and slowly pull on his arm. That's sort of like putting traction on a joint. And if you can hold that position for a while, as a person relaxes, the shoulder can go into place. So as I was pulling on it, my dad would talk to him to get him relaxed, try to distract him, and the shoulder popped into place. And the fellow was, he was absolutely amazed. He was, oh my God, I love you, I can't believe, hugging me, all that kind of stuff. 
The guy was so grateful, in fact, that he sent Steve a gift. About a week or two goes by, and there's a package that comes to my house. It's a long, thin package, and I went and opened it up, and then my mother, sitting in the kitchen, sees me walking into the kitchen with a long shotgun. Yes, the patient had sent Steve a gun. And she was like, oh my God, put that down. And she went to my father and like, I can't believe this. What's this? And it was the guy, he had sent me a gift. It was a shotgun that he had sent to the house. For David, going to the hospital with Herb was enchanting. And it made him see his dad as a sort of superhero. As a little boy, I would spend the days with my dad. And he would go to one of these smaller hospitals. Somebody had been there for two, three hours, and the nurses would say, oh, Dr. Mendelssohn's here. And I beam, that's my dad, you know. Dr. Mendelssohn, that's my dad, you know. I would light up as a little boy. And Herb would say to David, let's go take care of this guy. And he'd take a syringe. It was a glass syringe. And he'd he'd put a a metal needle and pull out some clear fluid. And then he would take an alcohol swab and swab this deformed wrist. And he would put a needle in there. As a little boy, you'd see this. And a flash of blood would come and fill in the clear fluid and dissolve. And then he would inject them. You know, I'm I'm a little boy watching this. Then Herb would get David involved. And then he would tell me, here, hold the arm. So I would hold the arm. And after a few minutes, my dad would pull on it. And the patient would go, oh, 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 I feel so much better. Thank you, Dr. Mendelssohn. As a little boy, that was the coolest thing in the world. Later, David got to help put on a cast. He put on the cast, and you would hold it, and you could plaster underneath your fingers. And it was like it was a it's like a rite of passage. You were doing this. This was just the greatest thing. I mean, that sort of summarizes everything about growing up with my dad and going to the hospitals. Herb loved being a doctor and wanted to pass on that love to his kids, but not by talking about how noble the profession was or how important he was. That was not Herb's way. Instead, he showed his kids what it meant to be a physician by involving them in the practice of medicine. And sometimes that meant tagging along with Herb to medical conferences where he'd put the kids to work. He would dispatch each child into a different room with a old-fashioned kind of reel-to-reel tape recorder. We would record the meeting, and then we'd run back to him with the tape. He'd take it out, label it, and give us a new one. And so we sat through endless medical meetings. So my dad could have all the tapes and learn what was going on, because he always wanted to be on top of the new knowledge. And then Herb and the kids would listen to the recordings. There's nothing better when you're nine years old, the Detroit Tiger baseball's on the air, you want to listen to an orthopedic talk. That's what you want. You want to listen to that forever and ever. Why would you want to listen to a 20-minute talk when you can hear a four-hour symposium with words that you don't understand, but it's okay because you're getting exposed? That's the Herb Mendelssohn model, and it worked. (laughs) Herb also took the kids with him to the office. He would beg, take me to the office, Uh, because he could be around him. He was fun to be around. If you went to the office, you could play. So if you could play... He would have, like, typewriters with erasable heads. That was like something else. And you could type in the back room, and 
You could go see what was kind of like going on and you could take splints and make your own splints. When I was growing up, I spent all my time with my dad going to the office and he had this way. He, he would say to me, Diane, go in there and find out what's going on with that patient. Just go talk to them. And I'd be, you know, six, seven years old, eight years old. And I'd go, oh, dad, I don't want to. He said, just go. And he'd throw you in. And I think that's how I learned to talk to patients. Those before PAs and all those things we got today don't have enough time with their doctors. They want to be talking, especially they're busy twiddling their thumbs. So I sent her in to occupy them and also give me an advance or a feedback of what they were thinking, what was bothering them that was useful. You'd get to go see my dad be a doctor, big, strong, help people, and he would break bones with his bare hands or reposition them. And maybe you'd come and put a cast on with him and you thought you were like in an operating room. They were just fun days. And then the, and you'd hang around in his office and maybe had a dictaphone and you would play with that. Or you'd go in the backyard of this office and go down into this ravine and just kill a day being a kid. Herb's kids also got to see how he interacted with patients and how he used jokes and pranks to put them at ease and just for the fun of it. He tells a story one day where beautiful weather, so good weather for all the motorcycle injuries to come in. So he put them all in one room and he'd like have four of them in the room. What happened to you? I'm riding my Harley and I had to put it down. All the machismo and all that. Bernie Kerner comes in. All he did was get up on a motorcycle and fell over and broke his ankle. And he's there and he's a, a good spinner of yarns. But in the meantime, I have a nun come into my office. And she and I used to kid around a lot. So I said to her sister, you're going to go in there, going to ask you what happened to you. He put her in the room purposely. She's the fall guy. What, it, Sister, what are you here for? My motorcycle. I love the wind in my habit. But some guy cut me off. Bernie's shaking his head. He couldn't believe it. This nun comes in and said to us, oh, I love to ride my motorcycle with my habit flowing out in the breeze. And she really pulled it off. It really was fun. Now, for a while, Herb wore a toupee, and of course, he used it as a prop for pranks. So he'd have this toupee, and he'd slap it on his head. He would see patients. He'd go in, he'd see a patient, be right back, take the toupee off, throw it in his bag, come back in. <laughs> that was just part of the Herb Edelson charm. I'd go in the room and examine the patient with it on, and take it off and come see him again. i wear it sideways. Because Herb worked at St. Mary's, he got to know a lot of nuns, and he enjoyed nothing more than playing pranks on them. He had a nun who had broken her hip and was fixed in Poland. The, the hip had healed, but the hardware was irritating her, and he had to come and take it out. So the sister asked him, could you please show me, say for me and show me uh, what they put in? Because I'm curious. Dick and I got a hold of an old railroad uh, uh, a rusty railroad tie pin that, and we showed his sister, look what, this is what they put in you. It was so funny. You always had to be careful. He, he would have like one patient that had a leg amputation, had an artificial leg. So you would be there and he would say, oh, here, let me show you something. And he would go and kick him in the leg. And the whole waiting room would go, <gasps> and then the guy would crack up, Herbie, you crack me up, you know. One of Herb's most legendary bits of hospital mischief involved a little peanut butter 
and a surgical patient who had emptied his bowels in the OR. Here's physician's assistant Pearl Dua, who's worked with the Mendelssohn's for many years, to tell that story. I heard the legacy of this story, and it has been in my mind for 15 years. But Herbie was working in the OR at St. Mary's, and he was waiting for a hip patient who was having a hip surgery for a fracture being anesthetized. So he was in the lounge and he was eating a snack because I think it was a late case. With orthopedic trauma, you never know when things are going to go. While he was having a snack, he was having like peanut butter and crackers. And in the hospital, they have these little like little cups of peanut butter that we just eat and run and because we don't have time to eat. So he was eating with crackers and then he had an extra one. He got, he heard his name called from like the overhead. Dr. Mendelssohn, we're ready for you in OR, blah, blah, blah. So he put in his scrubs, he put the rest of the food in his pocket, went to the OR, did the surgery. And one of the nurses like, Dr. Mendelssohn, can you please help us move the patient? We don't have that many hands. And so of course, Herbie gets all ready and helps posit- like set up the patient to move to the, from the gurney to the bed. And one of the nurses shouts, oh, everybody, code brown, just be careful. That happens for patients because of anesthesia. They haven't eaten, just the movement. So Herbie, as witty as he is, takes <laughs> the cup of peanut butter from his pocket, <laughs> opens it up very inconspicuously and puts it on his hand. And one of the nurses are, are like, Herbie, you have, or Dr. Mendelssohn, you have BM on your hand. Be careful. And what he did in front of the nurse was he just licked his hand, which was the peanut butter. And the nurse almost vomited. Like the look on the hor- the horrified look on his face or her face, I think was priceless. It's the story that captures him, <laughs> I think, for most of us. <laughs> There's a man at my house, he's so big and strong. He goes to work each day and he stays all day long. He comes home each night looking tired and beat. Herb's penchant for jokes and pranks was not limited to the hospital and the office. Anyone at any time could become a mark, such as Herb's friend and colleague, Bill Paris. He had a uh, friend who um, was a physician and opened up a very, very successful uh, practice at an opportune moment when he made quite a lot of money. And he moved from uh, Southfield to Cranbrook uh, and bought a massive house. And he used to say things like, you know, I got to get out of this place. The neighborhood's changing. I need to be somewhere where it's safe and protected. And there isn't any of that, quote unquote, bad element there. Bill's family had planned a surprise party for his 50th birthday, and the Mendelssohn's were invited. Now, Herb being Herb, he immediately set his mind to turning Bill's party into an opportunity to pull off an epic prank. And me being a shtick guy, I come, what can I do? I know. I'm going to take the boys and I'm going to go steal his hubcaps. And at that time, hubcaps were a big deal. And he had, you know, fancy cars, fancy hubcaps. So I got the boys and all, we're all together. They each got a, one of those pop off the hubcap things, and this is a court of uh, exclusive kind of court, the place he was living in. We pulled up in the middle of the night. We got out, went to our assigned tire. In the quiet of the night, you hear Stevie or Jeffrey, I can't get it off, Daddy, I can't get it off. And I said, sure. Anyways, I got him off, 
and put them all together in a big, like a big toilet paper box. The next day he had the surprise party. We go to the surprise party and this fella is pissed. I can't believe it. I move all the way out here and there's, you know, still they find where I am, steal all my stuff. I don't know what I'm going to do. Soon it was time to open presents. And when Bill opened the Mendelssohn's present in the shape of a large box, sure enough, there were his hubcaps. He was so blown away. Herbie, oh, I've got video of that. And he said, my hubcaps. Uh-huh. But I thought I could block, get it, the timing just right so he wouldn't call the insurance company. So he had already called the insurance company, drove me nuts with that. I wasn't much more than a baby. I thought he was a bat. The way my daddy carried me around. They said I learned to walk while holding. Now, as you've probably gathered by this point, Herb was not a conventional person. And he was definitely not a typical run-of-the-mill father either. For example, a regular dad might respond to his kids wanting a toy or a treat by saying that they'd have to wait for their birthday or that they could earn it by doing chores or some other normal parenting move. That was not Herb's style. If I ever wanted anything, dad would get it for me. And at the same time, he wouldn't make it easy. If I wanted something, I'd say, you know, like, dad, I'll make it up. I want a new game. Ah, game. What do you want a game for? Ah, And he wouldn't answer the question. Maybe your goal was, I want to go and get these baseball cards because I collect baseball cards. Or I want to go to a Tiger baseball game because it's bat day and I want a baseball bat. But you never got to quite just do that. He'd say, great. Yeah, okay. uh, Let's go over to this place. And you'd think you were going somewhere to get the game. But no, he was going there because he had to pick up some welding supplies. You would get tossed in a car and you'd swing by some very dangerous areas of Detroit perhaps to see your Aunt Ethel, who you could not understand with a heavy Yiddish accent, to inject her knee with cortisone or whatever he was doing. And then you'd have to swing by a plumbing store somewhere on West Grand Boulevard to get a valve to fix the refrigerator in the basement, or or actually, frankly, to fix the refrigerator at your Aunt Cyril's house. You'd have to make rounds with him that could last four or five hours. He'd leave you in the car saying he's just going to be out in a minute and then go do an operation. Ten hours, you'd be there. And you'd have to swing by a junkyard on Livernoy because we needed a carburetor for one of the many cars that didn't work. And you'd have the tools in the back seat. and You'd have to go rip that carburetor out of a car from a guy named Gibby. And this was not a uh, safe area for which he never, ever seemed to feel uncomfortable anywhere like that. And then you'd be starving. Literally, we starved. We could have died. We were so hungry. Eventually, at the end of it, he'd do two things that were great. One, he'd take you out to get fast food or have a meal uh, at a restaurant, which at that time, we didn't do that much in the family. So that was like an amazing treat. And then he'd eventually stop by and you'd pick up whatever trinket or object you wanted. It was an adventure. It never, ever ended. You'd have to swing by a place, and then you'd have to do a quick hit at the hospital. Quick hit. You might be left in a car for two, three hours waiting for your dad to go round on patients and and do whatever. But you would end up at a baseball game, and uh, you'd get that bat, and you'd get the baseball cards. And you got everything you ever wanted. Anything, any hobby or interest you had, my father supported it. He wasn't a guy to say, well, you have to earn it X, Y, Z. But you did learn the lesson that nothing in life comes easy, that it does come with a combination of perseverance, some shrewdness, 
some understanding that your material needs might be very second to some other real other pressing life needs? My dad taught by example. It's the way we learned. Some people talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Herbie walked the walk. My dad. Now here is a man. Herb's kids saw him as a sort of super dad, partly because he had large muscles and was physically very strong, partly due to Herb's ability to fix anything and get things done, and also because Herb had the confidence and willingness to do things that most fathers, indeed most people, just wouldn't even consider. For example, at some point during the early to mid-1970s, Herb's friend Bernie Kerner gave him a gold police badge. Bernard was connected with a lot of important people and players in Detroit. And that day, they would sometimes hand out a gold police badge, which was significant. It was, it was, how could I say, it was like a free pass. It was a specific honor. Not many people got them. Now, to be clear, this was not a fake or honorary badge. It was real. And not only was the badge authentic, but it signified a considerable amount of authority and power. Most importantly, for Herb, it opened up a world of possibility for making mischief on an entirely new level. The first time Herb realized what he could do with this badge was when young Jeffrey Mendelssohn won tickets to a concert. It's 1975. I remember this because I wasn't old enough to drive. Jeffrey used to win tickets on the radio with CKLW. And he won tickets to see Jethro Tull. And Jethro Tull was playing at air-conditioned uh, Cobo Hall, you know. But I couldn't drive there. So Jeffrey and myself and my dad, my dad, we only had two tickets. My dad dropped us off. And we said, you know, we'll, the show should be over at some hour and we'll meet you. And he said, fine. And we go and we sit up in our seats and we're there and there's a, an aroma of marijuana in there. Meanwhile, Herb was driving around downtown Detroit looking for a place to park while he waited for the concert to be over. And then it dawned on him, wait a minute, I have this police badge. So he drove back to Cobo Hall and pulled up near a policeman guarding a back entrance. I show my badge. I tell the cop over there, keep an eye on me. I'm going to be going checking out this concert. And I went in there. It was the easiest way to spend my time without driving around, looking all over the place. About 20 minutes later, the air clears. And all of a sudden, I see my dad sit down next to us. I mean, he's wearing a dark navy suit. He's looking like a dope. He used his badge to come in and sit down with us and everybody who was smoking put out their joints. So my dad saw Jethro Tell with Jeffrey and myself. So begins the legend of uh, Investigator Mendelssohn, Special Agent Mendelssohn. The Jethro Tall concert was just the beginning. Suddenly, Herb realized that if he acted with confidence and said something just cryptic enough to not quite make sense, he could flash the badge and get in just about anywhere, including Detroit Tigers baseball games. My brother Jeffrey was uh, a real sports fan when he was young. He used to love the Tigers, and he would beg my father to take him to the baseball games. And my dad was not a sports fan. 
but maybe once a year or twice a year, he would take us to the baseball game and he would use his badge to get us in. And I remember it was so exciting for him to do that. We felt like we were uh, secret agents. The mid-70s Tigers were among the worst teams in baseball. But in 1976, a quirky rookie Tigers pitcher named Mark the Bird Fidrich became an overnight sensation, setting the league on fire with his pitching and strange antics, such as talking to the ball. Suddenly, Tiger games when Fidrich pitched were the hottest item in town. Tickets were impossible to find. But if you had a gold police badge, none of that mattered. So on a Monday night when Fidrich was pitching against the New York Yankees, Herb packed the kids in the car and drove downtown to Tiger Stadium to see if they could get in. We can't get tickets. And I'm driving by fancy Lincoln convertible that I was redoing, rebuilding. We can't get tickets. And I went, God, I've got to succeed here. So I decided to use my badge. And I pull up in front, right across in front of the place. And the policeman there, I says, All right, I'm going to be going in. You just keep an eye on my car here. And, yes, sir. I showed him my badge. And he said, yes, sir. We'll take care of it. Don't worry. And that was one of many of those kind of leads. And then when you go in there, you have to have the follow-through of looking like you really are important. In those days, there was no cable. And the whole world saw the Tigers. We beat them five to one, and we stood in the standing room section of the third deck of Tiger Stadium, which I don't think they almost ever let anyone up there. But it was really cool because you were unbelievably high and over. And that stadium, I, I honestly, I was at the the last game of the series in '84 when we won the World Series. These games were equally as crazed. Herb didn't use the badge only to get into rock concerts and Tiger games. At least once, he flashed the badge to foil an actual crime in progress. This is a true story. So there was, I can't remember what the store was. It was uh, on 8 in Greenfield, and they're going out of business. An electronics store. And he's in the store, and he sees some guys carrying out some stuff. <laughs> Got the badge, and he walked up behind them. I said... If you'll put that down there right on the spot now, you'll be able to go. If not, you will. But anyways, I threatened them. They sort of put it down, and the, the kids ran off. And he had the guts. Who knows? People are going to steal things. might also be people who are going to shoot you. This is Detroit. But that badge was, it was just part of my dad's moxie and personality, and only Herb Mendelssohn could pull that off. Okay, so by now, I'm sure you get it. As a father, Herb Mendelssohn was a bit of a maniac, in a good way. But before wrapping up this episode, I want to give you two more examples of just how eccentric and unpredictable Herb could be. One summer, Herb saw a movie called The Swimmer, starring Burt Lancaster. I'm swimming home. You're swimming home? I figured out there's a river of pools all the way to my house. Crazy idea. The Swimmer is a pretty dark movie about a man who cooks up a bizarre scheme to swim home through the backyard pools of his suburban development. Along the way, he encounters people and places from his past, 
that gradually reveal the wreck his life has become. The movie made a big impression on Herb, but not in the way you might think. Most people who saw The Swimmer probably thought, well, that was an interesting critique of materialism and the shallowness of American culture, or something like that. Herb came away from The Swimmer thinking, hey, that's a great idea. And I saw that. David, we can do that. And so Herb dedicated that summer to crashing as many neighborhood pools as possible. So we'd throw towels in. We'd go to somebody we didn't know, and he'd be, let's jump in. We would all jump in. And these people wouldn't, they didn't invite us. They didn't know we were coming. But that was the summer's activity, to go to as many pools as we could. And we probably went to 30 pools. So I went from pool to pool to pool. And once in a while, I'd leave my underwear there. And I had all sorts of people looking, you crazy? Only Herbie would try to pull something out like that. I can't tell you how many times we did that. It was just insane, but it was fun. Papa got a new, brand new bag. Now, at some point, many families get a dog or a cat or some other pet, and they do that by going to a pet store or an animal shelter. Not Herb. Like so many things in Herb's life, getting a dog just sort of happened without a plan or even any discussion about whether getting a dog made sense. So one day at my house in Northfield, there comes to the door a little kid with a mutt, half mongrel, half mutt, cute as like a Dagwood Bumstead dog. She couldn't be more than nine, ten years old. And she says, I have to give my dog away. Do you want a dog? So I looked at it and I said, it looks just like my carpeting. I'll take her. So and I, I never would go get and buy an animal. I, you know, this is a mutt, perfect for me. And my wife was very upset until this mutt chewed up her favorite couch or ro- a rocking chair, and she got fond of her. Most new dog owners would get the dog spayed or neutered to avoid having to deal with a litter of puppies. Once again, not Herb. I said, from the beginning of time, this creature, for me to stop her from continuing. So when she had a, a little potatoes, that's what they hatch under the bed, five or six potatoes, we had a cut down big dresser drawer. I took that drawer to the office. I put these five or six potatoes in there. And you came to my office as a kid. You broke your wrist. There you got a puppy. I got rid of three litters that way. The dog, called Daphne, was Herb's constant companion. When he was called to the hospital in the middle of the night for an emergency, Daphne would keep him company on the ride. And she went with him to the office. There's one story of the office that I just, this dog would go everywhere. So one day, we're at his office on 8 Mile Road, 8 Mile Road being a very high volume road. And one day, we pull out of his office and we make a left turn onto 8 Mile. We have to cross the westbound traffic to get to the eastbound and we're driving pulling away from the office we look at the rearview mirror there's our dog chasing us we forgot to grab the dog (laughs) not an uncommon story and my dad just stopped and opened the door the dog jumped in and off we went those were the Mendelssohn days the Herb Mendelssohn story is a production of Tribal Knowledge Podcasting the executive producer is Jeremy Shear. The associate producer is Hannah Levine. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you haven't already, take a listen to the other episodes in the series. Thanks for listening.